Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. We're now a month into lockdown. My beard is inexplicable and we are all just about holding things together. Thea is here from her rural retreat. Thea, hello. Hello. And congratulations. Oh, thank because you. <laughs> this week you won a prize for the best essay stroke book proposal for Fitzcarraldo Editions and... You won it and you're going to have a book published I next am. year? That's next all year? true. That's all true. Uh, uh, maybe what's... not next year. I've got 18 months. I best get cracking. 18 months to, to, write, to write it. And the book is called? Dandelions. Or Dandelion. I'm not next... sure yet. Probably Dandelions. And it's about, it's about you and women in your life? It's about my nonna, really. It's about my grandma, my Italian grandma. Uh, she's sort of my Virgil. Uh, and oh, it's about migration between Italy and England, the backwards and forwards, mine, hers, all of my family's really, four generations worth of, of backwards and forwards and stories and half stories and lies. <laughs> but it's a hell of a thing to win. It's a proper big deal, this. It's, uh, it's a brilliant achievement. So, so it's really well done because you know, you're up against some big, big old people as well, weren't you? Thank you. I don't know if they were big or old, but they were people. Oh, fine. fine right. <laughs> Thank right. you very much. Uh, uh, now, now, listen, uh, this bit of the show, we are going to devote to listener feedback because people uh, are getting in touch with us all the time. And we, it does make us happy, doesn't it? So shall I just run through a couple of things? Because people who listen to this podcast are really interesting people. Uh, it has to be said. Uh, John Langridge has emailed to talk books, including some African recommendations like When Rain Clouds Gather by Bessie Head or A Walk in the Night by Alex Laguma, neither of which I've read, but he, he, he recommends them. But he's also, more importantly, wants to share a story from Australian lockdown theatre. Apparently, a giant freezer of pizzas was subject to panic buying, leaving only the unwanted Hawaiians in the corner. <laughs> so Australians don't like Hawaiian pizza. I'm not happy about that. It's interesting, isn't it, how no matter how desperate people um, are getting about food and we're seeing whole shelves cleaned out and, <laughs> yeah. and whatever, there's still an element of, of selection that goes on. In Irina Dimitrescu's piece, she mentions how spaghetti have all disappeared in Germany, but people who like rigatoni or cavatappi are still fine. They're still there. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had a Domino's pizza with my son last night and they've stopped doing Hawaiians because they've run out of pineapple. This isn't true. It is. Uh, we asked for it and they didn't have any. <laughs> oh. 
I don't know. That's the real cost of coronavirus. Uh, anyway, let's keep things colouring because Richard Grossman has emailed and you made a claim, Thea, uh, about originality in your cooking because you said you're the only person to have made a dish based on baked beans and kimchi. Oh, well, I didn't quite I, say that, but I, this is very did, interesting. Go on, go on, go on. Yeah, because he says, well, there's, there is a Korean dish called army-based stew, which involves kimchi, beans, spam, frankfurters and sliced cheese. And it dates from the Korean War when Amer- scraps from American army bases were added to Korean stews. Isn't that brilliant? It is really interesting. I think the sliced cheese tips it over the edge and the spam and the frankfurters. That's a whole other ball game. Could you eat that? I don't think I, I could eat spam. <laughs> no, I think that's probably right. That's probably right. I quite like plastic cheese, as you know. I know, but, but with I kimchi, think... it would be weird, I think. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. But um, it's an interesting other, other... bowl of history, that. It is, and it's one of those things, which is, which is why we like food so much there, isn't it? Because it always points to something larger, or it often points to something larger, doesn't it? So yeah. This idea of American-Korean relations. Um, other people who got in touch, Hannah has been in touch from Winnipeg in Canada. She's waging war against squirrels on behalf of the birds she wants to feed. And she's found a way of using loo rolls and wood to make a scoop to deposit seeds on her apartment window in a place where the squirrels can't get it. And she reports this. The quick little black-eyed juncos who are my intended diners are a little clumsy and at least two fly into the window each day. No fatalities as of yet. So there we go. That's what's going on in Canada. And finally, we talked about literary dogs, Kipling and Beckett. And now Jess Metcalf has tweeted with a picture of her dog Svevo, named after an Italian modernist. Thea, how familiar are you with Italo Svevo? Italo Svevo, yeah. Big name. Massive. Big, yeah. So so we've got Svevo, Kipling and Beckett. The challenge is out there. More literary pets, please. And if we don't get any more, Thea will just simply have to rename Alf. <laughs> Which I don't feel you're willing to do. I don't think he's prepared. Um, I don't think he'll go for it. No, I don't think he will. But listen, you know the stuff we'd like to hear from you about. It's basically animals, food and books. So do tweet us at StigAble, at Thea underscore Lenarducci, at the TLS, or you can always email me, stig.able at the dash TLS co.uk in return we offer you not only this weekly podcast but a chance to subscribe to the tls as cheaply as possible use this special offer code the dash tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer best price anywhere on the internet five issues for five pounds or five dollars coming up this week one of the problems of living in the uk is the fact that donald trump's mad narcissistic press conferences happen just before bedtime just what is going on with him coronavirus and his electoral chances Lawrence Douglas has been considering a load of books and these very issues. Irina Dimitrescu, professor and friend of the podcast, is living in Bonn, Germany. So we'll update us about her reading and life over there. And we have another AV audiovisual column in the paper. So Lucy Dallas will drop by, metaphorically speaking, to talk us through what to look at and listen to. The metaphor used by Lawrence Douglas to describe Donald Trump in the first paragraph of his piece this week is a giant radioactive lizard. Trump is the Godzilla of the White House who feeds on destructive energy. Lawrence, who is one of my favourite writers on American politics, as well as being a law professor at Amherst College, is fairly unsparing in his critique of the president, who he calls stupendously, even willfully ignorant, a man who lies and then lies about his lies. Can you lie your way out of mishandling a global pandemic, though? 
Lawrence sees an irony in the possibility of a president brought low not by his abuses of the office of president, but by his failure to be competent within it. And yet America could plausibly, if astonishingly, re-elect him. Plenty to chew over. And Lawrence Douglas joins us now. Hello to you. Hello. Firstly, before we get into the madness of Donald Trump, how are you bearing up in the strange new lockdown world? What's it like where you are? Uh, so we're in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts actually has emerged as kind of one of the epicenters in the United States of this COVID pandemic. We have about 40,000 cases in a state that has you know, under 8 million people. So it's pretty bad here. Uh, in the actual town where I live, it doesn't seem to be all that bad. Uh, but still, when it comes to basic things like um, getting tested, I think only if you're a first responder or if you're of a certain age can you get tested. So this uh, story that we're being told from the White House that tests are widely available to all states is, alas, not true. Lie number one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, well. Well, uh, there's an astonishing one. We're recording this on a Tuesday. There's an astonishing one on Monday night where he says, I cannot lie. He actually lied about not being able to lie. <laughs> That's again, it's, it kind of fits pretty perfectly. Um, before we get to, to sort of the recent extraordinary performances uh, of Donald Trump, um, how useful is it for you reading about him? You've tackled a few books about him. Is, is that a useful process to you? Um, you know, part, if one is reading uh, the papers on a kind of routine and an even co in a compulsive fashion, a lot of what emerges in these books is pretty familiar. Uh, even though I should say the books are very well researched and they seem to have interviewed with a lot of people who are very close to Trump. And so I think that what they do is they confirm a lot of what one already knows um, rather than kind of leading to a whole bunch of um, fresh insights. The one thing I should mention is there's this book, um, the second book that I uh, discuss in this uh, review essay, Unmaking the Presidency, uh, by Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes. Um, the one thing that's kind of interesting about that book is they try to at least kind of put Trump's abuses of office into a kind of a larger conceptual frame. And I thought they do a pretty good job of that, of asking us to think about what he's doing badly, differently, um, in the sense that they say, um, if you look at other examples of presidential malfeasance over the history of the United States, you usually find a pattern of presidents kind of pushing against uh, the envelope of what are understood as their constitutional powers. Uh, for example, Abraham Lincoln, back in the Civil War, he tried to suspend uh, habeas corpus, which is clearly something not within presidential powers. What Hennessy and Wittes do is they say that, you know, Trump, the thing that's kind of unusual about him is all the transgressive and abusive actions that he takes are usually well within uh, what we understand as the traditional powers of the presidency. So we understand that the president can issue pardons. That's well established in the Constitution. Uh, it's well established in the Constitution that the president can remove officers of the United States. But what is, what's kind of astonishing about Trump is because he sees no daylight between himself and the office, is he uses these traditional powers in this abusive fashion. So even though it's clear that the president can issue pardons, it's not particularly clear that he can pardon himself, which is something that Trump has declared he is capable of doing. Uh, it's also not clear that you can use the appointment and removal process to remove officers of the United States who are investigating criminal activity by the president. 
So again, it's kind of interesting how his, his abuses of power have come within what's understood as kind of conventional powers of the presidency. Is the upside of that then, Lawrence, that effectively he may well leave the presidency in the same shape as he found it? Because ultimately he's not actually expanded the powers of the presidency at all. Well, except that I would put it this way. I mean, he, has, uh, he hasn't expanded in, in the area of new directions, but you know, arguably in as much as the Senate uh, has refused to hold him responsible for his uh, abuses of his powers, he has created this kind of dangerous precedent that powers that have conventionally been understood as belonging to the president now can be understood as allowing the president to do pretty egregious things like, for example, firing officials of the United States who are investigating his criminal wrongdoing. You point out that the president enjoys absolute immunity from suit, so he can, you know, he can defame as he does with impunity, uh, undermine vital institutions and organizations and so on. Is, there a, is it possible that that right to immunity could be revisited in light of his term? Um, or is that something that's utterly unassailable uh, for the president? Right. So the thing that you are uh, referring to is his immunity from, for example, having a defamation suit being brought against exactly. him. Exactly. Right. And the point that I was trying to make is that uh, one of the qualities of his lies, it's not simply that he makes things up on a routine basis. I mean, that's certainly true. He does have this kind of amazing capacity to just kind of create things out of thin air. But there's another kind of quality to his lying that I want to highlight, and that is the lying also often looks like a libel or a defamation. That is, he not simply tells untruth about people or institutions. He makes up things that are defamatory of the reputation of people. He really maligns his targets. And so I guess the question you're asking is, in as much as he... Uh, previous presidents have been allowed to kind of speak, you know, say what they want, being immune from suit, is his pattern of kind of abusing that right something that is likely to lead to uh, changes in the future? My own guess is, alas, no. I don't think that will change. I think the president will continue to be able to enjoy the right to basically say what he wants to say. Uh, because you can imagine all sorts of, you know, bad up shots of if we constrain what the president is allowed to say. But again, unfortunately, I mean, this is another example of uh, Trump using what is understood as a clear presidential power to say what he wants uh, in an abusive and uh, destructive fashion. But one of, one of the things that it seems striking is you can say all sorts of things, lies. You can lie about lying. You can say black is white. You can you can you can invent a reality by assertion, which is what Trump's very good at. Does that not all founder when a global pandemic kills Americans in the tens of thousands? All these books that you've, you've reviewed predate the coronavirus. Has that changed anything? Has the, has the existence of the coronavirus and Trump's response to it changed the general position he holds in America, do you feel? I think it has. And I think in the following uh, way, I mean, even the kind of things that we've just been discussing so far, um, the three books that I look at, they really focus on abuses of power. And that's the thing that Trump has been um, accused of up until now. It's the thing that led to his, uh, the failed attempt to remove him from office through the impeachment process. The coronavirus actually exposes something very different. It's not an abuse of office. It's really kind of a failure to govern a very dramatic failure to govern. 
And I think it's much, much harder for the president to spin his way out of a failure to govern, not to say that he's not trying to do it on a daily basis. I mean, we see what he's trying to do. He's, he lies about the availability of testing. He blames governors for the spread of the disease in the United States. He blames the WHO for the uh, arrival of the disease in the United States. So he is trotting out his tried and true methods of deflection and blaming others. I just don't think it's going to play as well when you're dealing with this kind of pandemic. It's really hard to lie about the existence of corpses. Um, it's also put China in an even more central position as an election topic, hasn't it? I mean, it already was, but now more so. And so far, Trump has been talking up, as he tends to, both sides, you know, praising China and President Xi's handling one moment and then following the GOP's lead and blaming China the next. Yeah. How long can he play that game? I mean, again, that's <laughs> who knows? <laughs> well, I'm sure he's going to play that game aggressively and for a long time. And the thing that was interesting is even the way you just framed the question, it isn't simply uh, Trump doing this. As you rightly point out, it's the GOP. The GOP really thinks that they can get some mileage out of blaming the entire coronavirus on China. Uh, we've seen that uh, Trump in his briefings refer refers to it as the China virus or the Wuhan virus. Um, and that is something um, that, uh, again, it's not simply coming from him. It's coming from the GOP itself. How much is the? I'm, I'm fascinated by um, um, the GOP and its relationship to Trump. How damaging is it to the, his he to the party? And, you know, how, I mean, however many rational Republicans, when they pause to think of this, will they not think that this is not worth the price of just getting a few Supreme Court justices in who will pursue right-wing policies. Did, is there not a reckoning at some point that this is not worth the candle? Well, I think the question actually has a presupposition that I think I might challenge, uh, because I think one of the things that people who observe American politics tend to think is, well, the, uh, the Republicans have made this Faustian bargain with this man who's clearly unfitted for the presidency. And they've done so uh, simply in order to you know, stack the federal judiciary with conservative uh, judges. And I, I think it, that comment overlooks what's happened to the Republican Party itself over the last number of years. Um, I think it was extraordinary that in the impeachment proceeding, for example, the only Republican, the only Republican who voted to remove Trump from presidency, from the presidency, was Mitt Romney, who was the standard bearer of the party itself, a scant eight years ago. And the party, in is a certain uh, the party in certain respects is unrecognizable from what it was, you know, a decade, fifteen years ago. Uh, the kind of moderate or even rational forces, or even what you might say, the kind of the um, traditional conservative forces in the party have been so sidelined and replaced. And we really see a, a party which is uh, quite radical in its repudiation of you know, pretty, pretty basic principles of democratic governance. So I don't think of this as people are just kind of holding their nose and going along with Trump. That might explain the behavior of a small select number of Republicans as much as um, you know, Trump is really kind of the visible a manifestation of a party which has pretty dramatically transformed itself for the last decade or so. We've spoken before, Lawrence, about Trump as a sort of harbinger of civil unrest. You've got a book out this year called Will He Go? And there's this spectre when the election does happen in November that if it's close, 
he may well not accept the verdict of the American people. Um, but it struck me, and we've talked about whether that could lead to civil unrest, but it strikes me that and some people sort of play that down. But if we look what he's done in the last couple of days, where he's effectively giving support to people who take up arms and start objecting to lockdown, it feels like the peril of civil unrest in America if Trump doesn't win is actually far more real because we're seeing examples of it now with this lockdown, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, I think the, these kind of tweets coming out of the White House about liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, I mean, they're really quite shocking. Um, and exactly as you point out, they're kind of invitations to uh, civil unrest. They're invitations for uh, members uh, of, of citizens within states to engage in acts of defiance against the orders that they're receiving um, from, the, uh, from their governors. Uh, you might think that there are certain limits to the degree to which Trump is willing to divide the nation uh, in order to protect his own political brand, but I don't think there are any limits to that. I think uh, if it means um, inciting or making kind of invitations to violence in order to protect his uh, political legitimacy and brand, he's uh, willing to do that disgracefully. And, and from an outsider's point of view, I don't know if, Thea, you saw these, did you see the pictures of some of the protests, you know, guys with machine guns in masks? There was one sign I saw that said, social distancing equals communism. <laughs> Kind of the opposite. Actually, actually, if I can just make one, if I can just make one correction to what you're saying, what was what was even more interesting was not the gunmen in masks; it's the uh, carrying guns without masks because you know, yeah, 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 that's true. Right? It's yeah. the refusal to wear masks. Uh, and we live in a country, Lawrence, which has more or less accepted lockdown with very few, really, if you count the number of people, very few rules being imposed by the state, very few police interventions per capita. And maybe, I, I don't know, is your sense that America actually is, is filled with sensible people acting properly, but we're garishly interested by these crazy few uh, people who are sort of the Trump base, but that's not indicative of the country? Or is there enough there that there could be a genuine schism heading on its way? I think I would answer the question, um, since it was kind of one or the other, I think I would say both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that, you know, I think for, you know, tens of millions of Americans, they are behaving extremely well. They are, you know, listening to the officials. They uh, realize the gravity of the disease. I mean, certainly in my state of Massachusetts, uh, in fact, um, there were, uh, there were uh, reports in the news about the police urging people not to call 911, the emergency number, uh, to report on people who weren't properly socially distancing themselves when taking walks. So We've had that over here as well, the, the finger wagging, the neighbours, the neighbours complaining. Yes, exactly. But that said, you also have, you know, you obviously have, this is a very large country, 330 million people. Uh, there are people who are, it is a highly politically divided country. And you do have people who, who have these, you know, these alternative sources of information, and I should, I suppose, put uh, information in scare quotes, uh, who see the world very, very differently. And, uh, you know, the unfortunate reality is a lot of these people are armed. And, you know, if they're getting a messaging uh, from the president of the United States himself, then, yeah, the possibilities of uh, civil unrest are, are very real very disturbing. We'll probably have to leave it, but I, your piece is actually next to another piece. We've got uh, uh, Edward Lutvak's written a piece about Joe Biden 
uh, in the paper next to yours. And he, he, he's, he's sort of oddly, because he's not, not a sort of natural uh, Democrat, I don't think, is oddly sort of pro-Biden. But he says within his piece, Trump's re-election remains the most likely outcome in November. Uh, would you agree with that? I, I don't think I would agree with that. I think, I think the election is going to be, I think it's going to be a very, very close election. Uh, in fact, if I were to make any kind of prediction, I would definitely predict that Biden uh, will receive the majority of popular votes. Of course, given the fact that popular votes are ultimately not uh, dispositive with respect to the outcome of the election in the United States, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But uh, I think it will be a very, very close election. And, uh, you know, again, not to toot the book that I have coming out, I, I hope this is like not the wrong thing to be doing, engaging in gross self-promotion. Toot it, but, toot it, Lawrence, toot it. But I really do think that there's no doubt that Trump will challenge any kind of uh, close electoral result. I don't think there's any doubt of that. Lawrence, thanks. what a pleasure it is to talk to you. Stay safe in, in Massachusetts. And uh, I, I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again soon. And likewise, stay safe over the pond. It is kind of, I mean, one of the things that always occurs to me, Theo, we have these conversations with these very clever people, but we are... Do you watch Trump late at night? Have you ever done that? It's a, it's a very weird thing. I do sometimes, but I, I'm very aware of it being a terrible thing to do just before I try to go to sleep. <laughs> it has the, it's, it's not exactly soporific. I think that the, new, the idea of the new norm... Trump kind of introduced us to the concept of the new normal, didn't he? That every kind of mad thing that happens, we have to accept, put a context around it and go on. And now we live in a sort of new normal in lots of other respects. But when you pause and look at the president of the United States saying, liberate Michigan, it's, it, it's sort of bewildering, isn't it? It really is. And I think that, that, one, that one, one of the books that, uh, that Lawrence uh, reviews, the one that he mentioned uh, specifically, Unmaking the Presidency, is that what it's called? Um, yeah. Yeah. That word in itself, unmaking, is, is, it kind of hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? But it, you still don't know whether he's unmaking it to then make it again in a different way or whether he's just done making it to leave it in complete disarray pieces on the floor. Yeah. I think the latter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he probably agrees with that. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For the past few weeks, the TLS has been running a series of dispatches from writers around the world, a strand of letters from with a distinctive, inevitable COVID taint. The implied question is something along the lines of, how is it with you? What is your strange new reality? In mid-March, as Northern Italy fell ill, more ill than we could yet comprehend, Tim Parks wrote from a Milan in lockdown. It's not the Black Death, he said, before slipping with worrying ease into a line from the opening pages of Boccaccio's Decameron. They fell ill daily in their thousands. This week, writing from Germany, Irina Dimitrescu picks up the thread. But the Decameron itself? Not so much. Why, she asks, would someone want to read about plague during an actual plague? What then has she been reading instead? And more philosophically, is it possible not to read about the plague during an actual plague? Irina joins us on the line now from Bonn. Hello, Irina. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm quite well under the circumstances. Thank you. I feel I should ask what your temperature is, but we'll probably... <laughs> Leave it with how are you? Very cool, very cool. <laughs> um, while you decided against rereading the Decameron, then you do make a very good point about it offering, you say, um, a recipe for mental preservation. What is that recipe? I think the recipe is distraction. Distraction sounds very bad to us right now because, well, maybe not right now, but even a few months ago, we were comfortable, or many of us were comfortable. And, and when you're comfortable, distraction is a kind of drug. But in the middle of a crisis, Distraction is great, right? Uh, sex, humor, fun. Those are the things I think we need right now. Yeah, I mean, because I suppose it's a kind of the frame narrative of these people in the hills uh, in isolation outside Florence. And, and then from there, it's all, it's all diversion, isn't it? It's a sort of escape from the frame. I think you have to remind yourself that there's something outside the current crisis when it's so overwhelming and, when you, and so inescapable. Distraction, whether that means good literature or even cheap literature uh, is something that can can give you a kind of anchor to remind you that there's another reality possible yeah. too. Yeah, but I mean, we come, I guess we come up against this like a stoic school of reading out there, isn't there? You mentioned all those lists of plague books that we're supposed to all be reading. I can't imagine doing that. I think it would be so <laughs> traumatizing. <laughs> it was even hard for me to look at the opening pages of the Boccaccio. I really didn't want to do it. <laughs> And yet some people have been doing it. I mean, uh, La Peste by Camus has gone into, gone up the bestseller charts. I wonder if people are just saying they're reading or just buying it. Because I've been reading a lot of, you talk about some cheap books. I quite like the idea of the cheap thriller in a, in a crisis because you need something to, to, give your, to sort of give your brain a jolt, I think, in, in a crisis, not necessarily something languorous and, and beautiful. I wonder also if you kind of want something like that because it has a conclusion, it has a formula and it has an end and we have no kind of clear end. Well, I wonder if that's not some of the attraction of at least buying the books about historical diseases or pandemics. It's the knowledge that they ended at some point, right? Yeah. That there was an after. Although having said that, I read um, the book, uh, The Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuchman, the historian. Uh, which is it's about the calamitous 14th century, I think the subtitle is. Uh, and part of me did feel reassured. That, I mean, the Black Death was so very, very, very bad. I mean, effectively sort of half of Europe wiped out, corpses rotting 
in the street, you know, a complete breakdown of, of everything. And maybe that's reassuring because coronavirus is not the Black Death. No, it's not. And even as traumatic as it was, and I think we still don't really quite understand how bad that was for people who, who lived in it, there was an after, right? Some people survived, people rebuilt, people wrote books and poetry and songs yeah. and they danced again. Yeah. And many of them didn't. The other thing that, that struck me about it was uh, we had letters in, in the paper about this. Chaucer barely mentions the Black Death, despite living all the way through. He doesn't mention it very much. And, you know, Shakespeare, with, with the plague that was coursing through London through his career, doesn't write an awful lot about it either. And so there's a sense not only that people got past it and went on to other things, but people lived within it and it didn't entirely dominate everything. I, I've actually just read a book about uh, why that is in uh, medieval England. And I know there's another recent book about why there's so little treatment of the Spanish flu or the 1918, 1919 uh, flu in modernist literature. And I wonder if part of the problem is uh, the fact that it's actually quite difficult to talk about a trauma that large at the time. Yeah. It does seep through to the literature in all kinds of very, very subtle ways but it's not often dealt with in directly, face-to-face. -face. I think it would, be, it would be too horrible a thing to look at that closely. Well, so if not plague books, then what, tell us what you have been reading. I have been reading, uh, I'm getting into historical novels. <laughs> I have been yeah. reading, uh, I think that's going to be my escapism now. Uh, I've been reading a bit of Raymond Chandler, who is so wrong in so many ways that I just know I'm not in the present moment. <laughs> uh, he has every terrible prejudice you could imagine. So I, I know I'm in the 1920s with him. It's great. Though. It's, it's still great, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's stylish. It's, it, it's stylish. Uh, and uh, MFK Fisher, actually, that was the, mm. the one crisis book I allowed myself was How to Eat a Wolf, which... Again, is a funny book because the edition I have incorporates her later notes on it. So I get to inhabit the hunger and her reflection, her later reflection on the hunger from a time of plenty at the same time. That's a great choice. Yeah. And it's given me ideas for recipes I will never be able to make. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, probably a good, that's probably a good thing, Irina. <laughs> uh, um, I've, been, I've, been I've been reading a lot of spy novels. And again, I think because, like Thea, you said that because there's a sort of solution and a conclusion to them and because they are completely enclosed, they're enclosed worlds, aren't they? And I think books that you can enter into as a, as a sort of walled garden are probably things to, to, to do in, at this sort of time. I agree. And I find it strangely pleasing to read about death in a way that doesn't involve disease. That just involves people <laughs> shooting people each other. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. struck down in their, in their prime with no germs. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, you mentioned one book, Irina. You mentioned a book called Kamouraska. You say it's a Canadian classic, which virtually no one you know has read. I've never, I mean, I've never heard of it. So, I mean, Me neither. tell us about it. It's been on my shelf for about 20 years, just waiting for its day. It's, um, it's very poetic, lyrical, uh, stream of consciousness novel uh, based on a historical murder in the early 19th century in Quebec, in which a woman conspired with her lover to kill her abusive husband. At least that's the, the novel. And she spends, the main character, Madame Roland, spends most of the novel waiting for her sec ailing second husband to die, 
lying on a bed, feverishly thinking back on the trial and on her affair, how her husband used to beat her, the long, uh, long carriage ride through the Quebecois, win the wintry Quebecois um, countryside to kill this man and so on. And, and it's, it's kind of a trip. It's very heady. It's a very heady novel. And you can't escape the fever either. I could only really take it in small bits. I loved it. I kept coming back to it, but I would have to put it down again because it was too claustrophobic. Is it, is it, is it again about getting to a, a place that's not where you are now? Is, is it because historical fiction is very good that it transports you to a place that's kind of similar because people 500 years ago or 1000 years ago had similar preoccupations, but 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 also crucially different. And, and is that novel the same thing? It takes you to an environment where you're clearly not at the moment. I think that's part of it. But part of it is also that the woman's feeling of entrapment did feel a lot like what I what what I was sensing being home in the first couple of weeks of isolation. And so there was something homeopathic about that. It's not a medicine I believe in. <laughs> I think for the soul, it sort of works. It was just different enough that I didn't have to confront the real fear of what was outside, but I could plunge into a very strong, concentrated version of that anxiety and that fear and that sense of enclosure, and then again, pull back out of it and be released. Well, I mean, and connectedly towards, towards the end of your, your piece, you cite the truism that, uh, you know, great literature speaks to our troubles across time, but that, that sort of suggests a one-way process, which in the end isn't quite the case. No, I think we always remake it. This experience has really crystallized for me that what I do in the classroom as, as a teacher of literature is not really about conveying certain kinds of information, getting students to understand Old and Middle English and so on. I really have started thinking of what I do as laying a kind of groundwork for them for the future so that when they are in crisis, they will have a body of literature that they can draw on and remake to help them during their moment of crisis. And that might be something like grieving or a personal, um, personal distress, but it could also be a moment like today. That would imply that you want people to both read and reread, I suppose, when to confront something in a time before crisis, knowing that you can return to it when crisis hits. Absolutely. I think part, partly what I do is remind them or teach them that they can turn to this work and they can make their way through it. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's indeed, let's, uh, let's, it is a very good sentiment uh, to, to leave it on. Uh, Irina Dumitrescu, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Have you been rereading Thea in this period? I've not been rereading. Actually, that's a lie. I'm about to start rereading. Um, in fact, off the back of last week's episode when we were talking, we talked about similar themes in, in terms of escapism being a, something that's, that's derided. Do you remember I mentioned a book called um, uh, by Janice Radway on reading the romance? Yes. Yeah, as soon as we finished that podcast, I was like, oh, I, I must reread that because you know when you've read something and you know that it informed the way you thought in some way, but you can't yeah. quite remember what it was, what the theory was and why it struck you so at the time. So I immediately got hold of a copy of that uh, and it arrived just the other day. So I'm about to start rereading that. So, you're, yeah, okay, well, we need to report back on that because I reckon ha half of what I'm doing is rereading mm. now. But, I, I, you're, but you've, always been, you've always been big on the rereading, the re whereas I'm more of a reluctant rereader. I go back yeah. to reread when I know there's a specific thing that I need to find or confirm or, you know, query. 
Um, so, otherwise, so, I like to plough on. <laughs> you're more sophisticated than me. That's the point. I really don't think so. But okay, I'll take, <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. Let's move on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every month in the paper, we do a column on things to watch and listen to, which has become something of a public service now in the time of coronavirus. Or has it? Andrew Irwin, who writes about TV for the TLS and is the office's guru on Friends, wonders whether box sets and messing about is actually what people do in a crisis. He quotes Peep Show, which says this, You can't relax. We've got to fix, worry, speculate, tut, pace, swear. It's an emergency. And in an emergency, you watch breaking news and count your tins of butter beans. You don't sit in the garden and put on Kiss FM. And they were only talking about missing a christening. Andrew Owen finds the news the most comforting thing on TV as it makes us think ahead to a time when this will all be history. Alice Wadsworth, meanwhile, has been listening to a podcast about diseases and viruses. This podcast will kill you, urged people to wash their hands before coronavirus made that call. So it's perhaps the perfect place to go to for all your information about the new pandemic. Lucy Dallas is the doyen of the AV column, scant reader of the TLS, arts editor, digital editor and doughty northerner and is here now. Lucy, hello. Hello, how are you doing? Very, very good. Oh, uh, well, I say very good. I <laughs> it's all relative. Good. Yeah, uh, good, fine. Just, good. just, just below average, but not, not egregiously so. Now, OK, let's talk about this. It's a lovely column this month, isn't it? It's just such a lovely page and we didn't particularly say, please, will you write about coronavirus? But because it's on people's minds, uh, they just reacted, you know, with what they were listening to and watching and how they were thinking about it. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's really lovely. OK, well, let's find out if all three of us, are we the sort of people, this is sort of Andrew's uh, distinctions, to watch Tiger King, the sort of great Netflix documentary that everyone was talking about, Quiz on ITV or Newsnight on BBC Two, which are you most likely to watch, Lucy Dallas? I feel like this is a, a sort of moral trap. It's a personality <laughs> test. I know, yeah, that's exactly right. I don't want to take a personality test. Well, too tough, tough. You're on the podcast now, it's too late. <laughs> well, I'm not, you, you can infer nothing about what sort of person I am, <laughs> yeah. but I'll tell you uh, that I have not seen Tiger King on Netflix. I have not seen Quiz on ITV. I have seen a bit of Newsnight ever. So you're um, none of these I, things? Oh, God not sake, really, no. Um, but it seems to me partly that the, it splits slightly along age lines because without trying to sound like too much of a, an old timer, young people are enjoying Tiger King more than older people, I feel. Yeah, I, I think there's a bit of a backlash against Tiger King as well, wasn't there? That everyone loved it, and then people started saying, "Well, it's a bit exploitative. It's a bit, it's a bit blatant." Yeah, and presumably, I'm not sure about this, but presumably the oldies are enjoying Quiz, and the young people aren't, because the oldies remember it and go, "Ooh, scandalous!" Do you remember when everyone used to watch telly? What category yeah. am I falling into there then? Because I've watched. I can't all answer three. that for you, Thea. <laughs> <laughs> go on, Thea. What's the question? Go I've watched all. I've watched all three. Um, okay, well, this, that's useful because uh, Lucy hasn't, so she's no use to anyone. Thea, <laughs> uh, what do you make of Tiger King and then Quiz? T tell us what you made of it. Um, Tiger King was compelling. It was a bit like a a kind of a more dubious, for the reasons you, you alluded to a second ago, Stig, uh, a slightly more dubious version of something like S-Town. Um, yeah. Do you remember that? You're the amazing podcast. Um in terms of finding these 
quite frankly, mad characters. But whereas S-Town, I think, drew out the sadness behind the madness uh, and a, a much more complexity, uh, Tiger King didn't really see, didn't really do that quite so much. So I see, I see the charge of of um, of, of being exploitative. Uh, I do recognise that, but also it was it was entertaining. I mean, it was it's properly mad. Um, quiz. I've got one episode left to go, and you know it's Stephen Frears, safe pair of hands. It's very nicely um, directed. It's very nicely put together. I think, although it's true what 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 Andrew makes a point about pacing, um, which I hadn't thought about until I, I read. I read his column. Which, Which is, is what? What's his point about pacing? Uh, that it's just slightly off. It's just it, you, it's slightly the first episode really, really goes uh, steadily, and, and you really kind of get wrapped up in it. And by the second episode, um, things just sort of don't come together quite so well. It's a bit bittier, <laughs> for want of a better word. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm waiting to see now what the what the third episode does. And for people who are, who, are, who are listening to this from all around the world, quiz is about who wants to be a millionaire. The very famous quiz show. Uh, in which someone was accused of cheating by having people cough in the audience at the right time to give them an answer. Yeah. Um, I liked Um, Andrew's point about it as well, about the casting. It's a very, very good cast, but they're very well known to us from um, recent things as well. So he said at some points it was like watching um, a drama with Fleabag's sister and Tom, unpronounceable name from um, Succession yeah. and um, Tony Blair and Tony Blair yeah it was like watching <laughs> all those three together and going what, what's going on and Michael Sheen is uncannily good as Chris Tarrant mm. I, I have seen a bit of that I saw Chris Tarrant's son on Twitter say how, how, how he found him uncanny which is probably as good a praise as, as you could possibly get well let's move on to Andrew's main point because I because when he wrote the piece I read the first parrot which was about Tiger King and quiz and I kind of thought well this is kind of standard here are the big shows during lockdown tv review but of course Andrew wasn't making that point and his he made this rather brilliant conceit which I don't agree with at all but I do think is rather brilliant where he said news is the only thing you should watch it's reassuring, and it's reassuring because as the first draft of history, it reminds you that this one day will be history. And so he finds it consoling. Anyone agree with that? Uh, just a caveat. I don't think he said it's the only thing you should watch. No, right, I think I'm, he said... I'm just sexing it up a bit, Lucy. For, God, for God's well, sake. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm de-sexing it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> But and I think he, it was also the idea that um, that if if there is a lot of panic and worry around watching somebody calmly telling you the actual facts is quite reassuring. But then yes, also the sense of this is history, this is real, and then in in the past we will be able to look back at it and know that it was there because of the news. And being very incoherent, he puts it very nicely. But I don't. I yeah. I I, I think that's reasonable thesis. Why not? Um, well, tell me, I'm interested, both of you actually, where do you get your news from? Because uh, you're, at one level you're at home, often you're on computers for a large part of the day, so the ability to access news the whole time is, is there, isn't it? Uh, are you rationing how you get news? How are you consuming news? I am trying to ration how I get I think I'm doing what most people are doing, which is trying not to get too much and then getting sort of stuck um, reading about it. I find in terms of sort of flagship things, mine wouldn't be Newsnight necessarily, it would be PM at five o'clock because you get a bit addicted to the the briefings, less so now. But also I do think Evan Davis is really wonderful. 
And that's quite a good point. And if you can, if I can listen to that and then not hear any other news, that's good. But that doesn't always work. Yeah. What about you, Theo? How are you doing it? Um, yeah, I mean, the same. But also, I, I think probably um, I'm of Andrew's school in that I check in in the morning and then around lunchtime. Um, and then not until I tend to skip the afternoon briefing and just get the news at 10. I, th- I think something about the BBC... Having knowing that BBC News at ten is always on at ten, it's in the name. Um, it's just become something automatic, uh, and I know that there are other channels out there. I always mean to watch Channel Four, <laughs> and I just always end up watching the news at ten, even though you know sometimes w- it makes me angry. <laughs> and I wonder also whether that's very old-fashioned. But yeah. one of the consequences of lockdown is, in some ways, the best. I, I, best way to, to deal with the news is to is to have appointment to view because I'm I'm more of a terror scroller as I, I've said before and so I feel I get the information uh but I don't ever give myself 20 minutes to sit and watch something I just feel I've kind of got it as a sort of low level hum in my life I really like the idea of of getting it in one place at one time and even more so if there's the possibility that other people are doing exactly the same thing Oh, the sort of the, oh, the sort of reading Shakespeare with Keats's brother approach to this. Yeah, I guess so. I do. I I think I've always been a sucker for that. I really like mass events, <laughs> mass viewing events. <laughs> I find that re- very reassuring. And you think, well, we're all being told the same thing. We're we're learning it. We may not be learning it at the same time, but we're getting the same nuance. And then I tell you, the thing that makes me really worry is now they've started doing funny bits. Uh, certainly on the radio not funny bits but you know little quirky or things to make you feel better because it's like it's so awful yeah. we have to tell you about a parrot who did a stunt otherwise you will be so depressed <laughs> yeah. yeah and in a funny in a funny way that there's very little a parrot could do that could alleviate the general depression about uh, the whole of the world going to, to the to the dogs very very little i think no disrespect to parrots but very little it's a bit like uh, it reminds me of that the other that other great source of news um anchorman yeah and that's that's all they do <laughs> it's brilliant uh, and also the day-to-day that they were the headlines god i wish they weren't um <laughs> <laughs> uh, to our podcasts because uh, alice has uh, reviewed a podcast called this podcast will kill you and the, the idea behind that is that people crave expertise uh at this point uh, rather than escapism uh do you buy that as an argument um yes and the interesting that Alice was saying she listened to this anyway and they di- I mean they're particularly well placed to deal with um with the the pandemic because they're epidemiologists the the uh, the women who present it um but and Alice was saying she finds it reassuring but because the, again in a way for the same sort of reason because there is a lot of knowledge there and a lot of context so it kind of grounds you um, and I, I, I did have a listen to this one. Amazingly, I, I did did some preparation, um, and it's very good. It's serious, but it's not pompous, and it's very. Yeah. It's got lots of context. They're very long. They're over an hour each podcast, but they're taking this extremely seriously. But they're not. They're not sort of hitting you over the head with it. Is their strapline something like finding fighting fear with facts? Yes, it is. It is, and 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 that's. You know, that's very much what they do. But what they also do is say, like Alice says, they say, wash your hands, you filthy animals. And they give you a different, (laughs) they give you a recipe. In fact, the one for the most recent one looked delicious. They give you a recipe for a different cocktail, quarantini. 
each episode uh, and there's a there's an alcoholic one and a non-alcoholic one and one of them had an ingredient uh, that I've never heard of before which you probably can't buy in a shop either so it's academic um, do you think that I mean because because the other thing that uh, Alice has been listening to is is the c word which is uh, Lena Dunham and I wonder whether celebrity is having a good war or not and it feels to me it's good to hear from epidemiologists because they're experts and because they've pursued a subject for its own end and we can kind of trust them. And then it also feels that celebrities generally aren't necessarily people you want to turn to during a pandemic. You know, Idris Elba saying we should close everything down for one week in, every year from now on to mark this as if it was a kind of just minor diversion for someone sitting in a in a multi-million pound home and there's a question of Victoria Beckham furloughing her staff despite having a vast f- uh, fortune. Do you think that this, having lived through the age of celebrity, this is maybe not a time for celebrities to talk up? I think, I mean, I think that, let's just say some people have more to offer than others. <laughs> <laughs> that Victoria Beckham thing, there are lots and lots of other male CEOs uh, asking for money from the government and not coughing up themselves as well. I think there's quite a lot of focus on Victoria Beckham. Just just saying. <laughs> and also there's not... I mean, I suppose Richard Branson has had a similar level of focus. It's a much bigger deal, though, I suppose, uh, him as a, as a businessman. Do you think that's misogyny? Well, I think there's a, at least a whiff of it, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and I think, actually, and I, and I had a look at this podcast. They haven't done any for the... Uh, I think since maybe mid-March, so... You know, they're not saying, who cares about coronavirus? Come and listen to what we're saying. Um, and I think what Alice was saying about that in this context was that, it, that again, again, it was about adding context to stories and adding sort of kindness and awareness. And rather than just going, oh, my God, look at that mad woman. They say, well, yeah. actually, why do people do these apparently bonkers things? And often they're very sad complicated reasons um and there's a nice bit she's got in her column where she says we all need to have a bit of tolerance we're joining mutual aid groups or we're we're perhaps living to a neighbor who living next door to a neighbor who constantly plays what did you say magic fm i think (laughs) i haven't checked whether that's true but it it kind of sounds heartfelt yeah Before we go, then, shall we just do a quick what we're listening to and watching any recommendations you've got for anyone? Maybe a book, a thing on a telly and something to listen to. Lucy, have you got anything? What are you listening to? I'll tell you what I'm listening to, actually. Go on. Um, It's a, a band originally from Sudan who live in London now called the Scorpios. They're absolutely brilliant. I saw them live when you were allowed to go and see gigs. And they've got this um, song called Mashena, which it turns out is a cover of the classic, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Mashena by a a sort of girl band from Nubia in the 60s. They yeah. were called the Sudanese Supremes. You I'm you know about them. Very familiar um, with, that, with their work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Al Balabil, they were called. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you see? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the Sc- Scorpios have done this brilliant uh uh, version of their song Mashena. It's very groovy. It's just very, yeah. That's it. There you go. Okay, okay that uh, book or telly? I don't know about one book. I, science fiction I find quite good um, in that it takes you elsewhere. Another person I remembered who is always good at this time is Anne Tyler. Yeah, ah, I just yeah, read well, a, a spool of blue thread. Have you have you mm. reading that one? That's that's lulling. Okay, Thea, are you still on ER? Oh, no, God, I dropped that ages ago. It got really quite bad. 
You dropped TR? Yeah, yeah, I stopped. I drew a line under that. After, I don't know, I don't care to say how many series I decided that it was running on fumes. Okay. okay. <laughs> so anything, anything you want to recommend? Um, well, I, I, yeah, I'm enjoying Quiz, so I will recommend that. Um, okay. uh, in terms of reading, uh, well, I already told you I'm about to start rereading reading the romance yeah. and I'm actually finally getting down to a book that I told you I was reading two years ago um <laughs> <laughs> which is that one about um witch trials in the Friuli in the, in the 16 and 1700s by um oh, yeah, Ginsburg. Yeah. so I'm finally about halfway through that so I'm not going to recommend that it's quite niche I, Anne Enright how about some that. Anne Enright actress very good very good okay All what the about Anne's... you Stig I'm watching a show, a terrible show, which uh, which I we used to watch with my wife just before we had children, called The Mentalist. Oh, which, I love The Mentalist. It's great, it's great isn't it? It's a, <laughs> yes. It's, it's a guy called, I can't remember the guy who plays it, Patrick Jane. He's called the, Jane. They just call yeah, him Jane. <laughs> Patrick Jane, and he's a, he's a hypnotist who's helping the Californian cops solve crimes. And the guy who plays him is just so mesmeric. He's brilliant in it. It's a great show. Uh, so I'm watching that. And... Uh, in my descent into thriller reading, I've decided to read The Hunt for the Red October by Tom Clancy, uh, which was a film starring uh, Sean Connery back when I was a kid. And Catherine Zeta-Jones. No, surely not. This is yeah, I think, is, wasn't it? Wasn't it that he was very, very old and she was his love interest and she was like <laughs> Funny 40 no, years that, younger no, than him? That was, that, was in, that was Entrapment or something like oh, that. Oh, sorry. OK, I'll, ignore me. Yeah. Yeah. October is, is in a submarine. It's just Russian men looking gruff. Yeah, and Catherine that... Zeta-Jones. No, no, I'm sure she's not. <laughs> it's in got it. Alec Baldwin yeah. in it. I'm looking it up yeah, now. But, Sean Connery, yeah. Alec Baldwin. No, Catherine there's no, there's no Catherine Zeta-Jones here. <laughs> Sorry. <Okay. laughs> well, apparently, it's quite a good film, and, and the book's quite good as well. Uh, should we, should, should we leave it there, Thea? Have we done that? <laughs> Ending on a high note. <laughs> Lucy Dallas, what a joy speaking to you as ever. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Irina Dimitrescu, Lawrence Douglas and Lucy Dallas. Please do keep supporting the TLS by subscribing when you can. This week we do a big politics and economics number. Paul Collier explains the problem with modelling and coronavirus. Isabel Hilton looks at China and we hear from Alex Salmon's biographer. All that plus loads more. Next week we look at graphic novels, among other things. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.